This episode brought to you by Team Stripes Academy. Learn from some of the top officials in the world. Start today at TeamStripesAcademy.com. You're listening to the Team Stripes Podcast, the podcast for hockey referees. Each show, we discuss the world of officiating and find out that not everything is in black and white. Here's your host, Brandon Bourgeois. So welcome everybody back to another episode of the Team Stripes podcast. We have a great episode for you this week. Uh, we're actually bringing a former NHL referee to uh, the episode, and his name is Greg Kimmerly. So Greg was a former referee, as I said, in the National Hockey League. He had over two decades of experience and worked 1,138 career games, 14 playoff games, as well as the 2007 All-Star Game in Dallas. He also currently is a director of officiating development in Europe, and so he uh, comes to us from uh, Toronto, where we're reaching him today. So, uh, Greg, I want to welcome you on to the uh, podcast. Thank you for having me. So, Greg, before we kind of get into uh, to the, the interview here, I mean, I'm just curious, how did you get uh, involved with officiating? What's uh, your, your background? Well, like, like most uh, officials, I was a, a frustrated hockey player. Uh, very passionate for the game, but uh, lacked the skills to, to move to the level that I wanted to. Uh, and when I was about 16, my father suggested that I uh, find a way to make some money. And so for me, it just made sense to go out and, and start refereeing in the Western House League here in Toronto at 7 a.m., working the, the little guys, the tykes and the novices. Uh, and at the time, I was playing for two hockey teams. Uh, one was a high school team, and another was a team in the in the back then the GTHL, and um, it just it, it, it was a natural fit for me. My passion for the game, and, and I enjoyed it. Uh, one thing that I found was that I didn't even notice the fans that were criticizing from the stands, and, and I loved working with the little guys. And then uh, from that, it progressed uh, from there to all the way to the NHL. It was a bit of a journey, but all the way to the NHL, which I'm very grateful for. So you moved up the ranks, and uh, on November 30th, 1996, you had your very first NHL game. Uh, Boston was playing in Pittsburgh. I mean, walk me through kind of the memory of getting that first NHL game. I think you had some uh, you had some verbal jousting with Mario Lemieux that game. Just could you could you walk us through that that first game for you? Uh, well, like everyone, is very memorable moment. Uh, I'd been in the, I'd been under contract for a couple of years, so I've been working American League games. And so this was uh, around the American Thanksgiving in, in Pittsburgh, and, and uh, I remember it vividly. Uh, I remember being on the ice. Uh, back then it was the three official systems, so one referee. Uh, so I was skating the full length of the ice, and uh, I, I remember just soaking it all up and taking it in and realizing how cool it was, and then trying to remind myself that I'm out here to do a job and that I wasn't there as a fan. Uh, on that night, uh, Pittsburgh won 7-3, to three, I believe. And Yager got a hat trick, and I believe Mario Lemieux got four assists. And I definitely remember one play where Mario Lemieux threw a backhanded, a blind backhanded pass to the slot, and and Yager scored. And uh, to me, that was pretty cool. Um, you mentioned about some jousting with Mario Lemieux um, in the third period when they were up by a number of goals. Uh, he came up to me and and during a TV timeout and told me that I didn't need to put my whistle away. And I quickly turned back to him and I said, if if uh, I recall looking at the calendar, it's November right now and not April. And what I was referring to was back in those days, playoff time, uh, certainly all referees put their whistles away. And I was just letting them know that uh, I was still in charge of the game and I, I was aware of what was going on. And ironically, I called five penalties in that game. 
And the supervisor for the game, Brian Lewis, came in and his, his critique of the game was you called five penalties, but you only needed three. So 1996 was a different era in the game of hockey because back then uh, we, we let a lot go and we only called what we felt was, was necessary. Uh, certainly the game has changed and evolved uh, dramatically since then. Uh, but yeah, it was definitely a memorable moment of mine. And just like thinking back on that experience, I mean, you're standing for the national anthem and you'll, you glimpse around the rink. I'm assuming you see like these superstars like Mario Lemieux, like uh, Yager. I mean, what's running through your head in those moments before the game? What actually goes through your head at that time certainly did for me was uh, how hard of a journey it was to get there. Uh, it had been a long road. You know, I mentioned earlier in this in this uh, interview that I started when I was uh, 16. So it had been through, you know, working those those house league games, uh, many, many hours in the car in the American League, driving from from city to city. Uh, lots of sacrifices through university and, and high school where Friday, Saturday nights, you weren't going out socializing. Um, my first two years, uh, sorry, my first three years, I was, I was a trainee with the National Hockey League and I worked full time for Dun & Bradstreet out of Mississauga and uh, got married in June 1990 and signed with the NHL as a trainee September 1990. So my first three years of marriage, my two weeks vacation at my job, were used every Friday so that I could go down and uh, work games in the old International Hockey League. So at, at that moment during the National Anthem, you just sort of appreciate all the sacrifices or, or you reflect on the sacrifices and then you say to yourself, okay, I've, I've made it, I'm here. Uh, and then that game's over. And, and as I mentioned, you get, get critiqued from a supervisor and you realize, okay, I've, I've made it this far, but it's going to take just as much to stay there. So... Uh, <laughs> You, you really can't be in awe of who's on the ice. I, I, as I said, I, I, I do remember that feeling of, of when Yager scored a goal and I'm looking at Lemieux passing the puck thinking this is pretty cool. But you have to snap out of that and, and realize it's a job and it's what you've worked hard to achieve. And you kind of mentioned, you know, you wanted to do a good job and stick around. And obviously you did that because you almost had about two decades as a referee in the NHL. Like we said, working over a thousand career games. And just like looking back at your time in your career, is there any memorable games for you that stick out? That one sticks out um, for me. And another one that sticks out, you mentioned in, in my bio, was the 2007 All-Star Game, uh, which was in Dallas, uh, because for me, that was a real family moment. Uh, we spend so much time by ourselves uh, on, on the road, traveling, sitting in airports, uh, your family sacrifices, you miss birthday parties, recitals, all those things as, as your kids are growing up. And that was the first experience where my family was able to share in that. And, and I have a, a vivid memory of my 11-year-old son standing between Crosby and uh, Ovechkin in the dressing room as they're talking before the game. It was both of their, uh, both of them, it was their first All-Star game. And they're standing there in their warm-up clothes, ready to, you know, to head out on the ice. And my son's just watching them talk and, and asks for an interview. Uh, my daughter also got access to the dressing room and, and you know, just seeing the, the, the eyes of the kids, wide-eyed uh, children who are taking in every moment. And, and to me, that was a family moment. So 2007 definitely stands out. Uh, my thousandth game in Toronto stands out. It was an opportunity to, to share with, with friends, uh, friends and family here in Toronto. And then, uh, you know, the game that I got a standing ovation for, which was the game in Toronto when they knew I'd never be back on the ice, was, was my last game. <laughs> Uh, so that's, you know, it's always the joke. It's the only time the officials get a standing ovation is when the fans know that you're never going to return. Uh, on, on top of that, I guess one that does stand out is a, a playoff game with Boston and Montreal. 
<clears throat> I forget the, I think it was 2011 and we went to double overtime and I had to call a penalty in, in uh, double overtime. And, and uh, to me, that was probably, uh, you know, one of the most pressure filled situations that I was in. And, and I was pleased that I, that I put my arm up when it counted and when it needed to be done. And you mentioned your, 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 your final game in Toronto and you're obviously a Toronto guy uh, born and raised. I mean, you know, how does that conversation go when you, you know, you're deciding to, to choose your final game, your final location? How does that all come about? And like, how do you pick your crew for, for that game? Well, the NHL does an excellent job these days of, of um, allowing officials to retire, we like to say, with dignity. And you do get to choose your final game. They prefer that it's not in the last week of the season in case it has playoff implications. Uh, you are able to choose your crew. Uh, generally you choose a, a crew of, and that's, that's a very difficult choice. Uh, you know, there's 76 officials on staff and you have to narrow it down to three other people that you want to spend your final game with. Um, but generally we all pick people that you've gotten close to over the years, people that have helped you along the journey. Uh, there's always ups and downs with the career. So people that you've, uh, come to lean on over the years and people maybe that uh, even your, your families have forged a friendship with and, uh, picking Toronto was, uh, kind of bittersweet tickets are not available so if you've got friends coming they need to uh, pay for their own tickets or um, you know you have to have to cough up big big bucks to make that happen um, it's, it's a media a spotlight certainly for uh, for hockey it's, it's uh, you know the, the center of the universe as the Maple Leafs like to say uh, the year that I did it was the year the Leafs ended up in 30th so it wasn't a pressure-filled <laughs> situation uh, it would be different now, now that they're in the playoff hunt and, and they've got a contender. Um, so that, that was a, a bit of a problem. I wanted to do it close to home. Uh, some people have done destination ones like New York or Phoenix or things like that. But I, I just felt it was better for my family to share if we did it close to home. So it, it turned, out, turned out to be a great event. And just, you know, we'll, we'll get to some questions in a second. But just that, that last game, I mean, obviously, like we've talked about you had a really great career. I mean... In that last game, when does it sort of sink in to you that this is, hey, this is my last game, you know, I'm going to step away from this profession? Like, does that hit you right away or is it, you know, it takes a little bit after that game to kind of have that feeling sink in? Uh, for me, I remember feeling in the third period and thinking that this is pretty cool. Uh, you know, I got to do this for a number of years and, you know, it's coming to an end. And, and I was good with that. The game, the game was getting too fast for me. It was time for me to move on. Um, I felt I had other skills that I could give back to the game, uh, which I'm doing now. Um, so I was in a, in perfect frame of mind to leave the ice. I, I, I wasn't you know, struggling to hang on. It, it was time to go. Uh, and there, there was just, you know, a, a bit, it was more of a cool feeling in the third period. I definitely remember skating backwards as the play was coming at me and thinking, wow, this is pretty cool. I got to do this for 23 years and, uh, you know what, it, it, it all ends tonight. Uh, haven't looked back. Uh, don't, I, I miss the camaraderie in the dressing room. I, I miss to a certain extent the pressure of having to go to a fitness test every September as I, as I put on a couple of extra pounds uh, over the last two years. Uh, there isn't still the same drive to get out and, and run early in the morning or get to the gym three, four hours a day during the summer. You know, you try to do a little bit and it becomes more lifestyle. Um, but, but I don't, uh, I'm, I'm pleased and proud of what I accomplished and, but I don't look back and, and, uh, have regrets or, or miss it for any reasons. I'm trying to uh, leverage the experience that I gained and, and move forward onto something else. Yeah, and um, you kind of alluded to it, but you said the game was getting really fast, and also that the game had been changing. You know, during the the time you've been, you were in the National Hockey League, and 
just coming to penalties because we've had a lot of great questions come in from our from our listeners and the first question i want to ask you is like when you're calling penalties i mean how do you decide what to what to call versus what to let go i mean and 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 uh, and to add on to that i mean is there some penalties that are just a lot tougher to call than others well, one thing that I, I, I try to preach to uh, the guys over in Europe is the one thing that you definitely want is you want the infraction to be obvious. Um, we get ourselves in trouble when we're we're looking for uh, what I would say nitpicky penalties, and a lot of those come along the lines of obstruction, so the hooking or the holding uh, away from the play, and some of those can be done uh, through communication. Uh, talking to the player, talking to the coach, uh, if they really don't have an impact on the play. And, and that's that's where you, you get a real sense of someone, as, as they talk about, has a feel for the game. So for me, the first thing is that it, it, it needs to be obvious. It needs to stand out. Uh, there needs to be some sort of a benefit to it uh, or a consequence. And again, if we're talking about a, a restraining foul, um, if a person gets gets slightly hooked, are they able to complete the play that they wanted to complete? Okay, and, and a consequence doesn't necessarily mean or a benefit doesn't necessarily mean that there has to be a change of possession. That's the most obvious one. But you have to also ask yourself, you know, did they make the play that they wanted to make? Uh, they were looking to their, their left for an outlet pass. They get a slight hook. Now they have to turn and then that outlet pass goes to the right side. Then that's not the play that they, they wanted to make. They needed to adjust. And so that, that, that should be an infraction. Your arm should go up. Uh, the the checking team gained a benefit by slowing down the puck carrier. Uh, so so to me it's it, it's obvious benefit. And then the ones that really jump out are injury. And certainly with the focus these days uh, with hits to the head and hits along the boards, uh, injury is a is a big factor. And the hardest part about that is that uh, we have too many hockey players that are trying to draw penalties. And certainly that that's that's an issue that we have over in Europe with players turning to the last second and, and actually propelling themselves into the boards to try to draw a penalty. So injury to me is now becoming uh, the hardest uh, defining moment of, of, of whether an arm goes up or not. Um, as a referee, you don't want to be that person that misses the call that, that causes a, a major head injury. Uh, you want to keep the game fair and safe for everyone. So you want to be able to react to those. But by the same token, you don't want to get sucked in by someone who is able to embellish or, or, or draw you into putting your arm up. Yeah, and uh, you made a great point talking about embellishment. And, you know, certainly I think from an outsider looking in, it looks like it can be pretty pretty darn tough to call some of those dives sometimes. And, I mean, like what do you tell your referees now in terms of calling those embellishments? I mean, do you say, hey, just err on the side of caution, only call the ones that you're, you're 100% sure? I mean, what's kind of the mindset of calling those embellishment penalties? As an administrator, you sit there and you watch and, and you know, we're able to evaluate on TV and, and uh, back it up and replay and, and you sit there and you wish that your official had called just the embellishment. Um, but we acknowledge that that's extremely, extremely hard to call in live action. And for us to just call the embellishment, that's when a player doesn't get touched and then they fall. And that very rarely happens. You see that sometimes with a uh, a face wash or a punch to the face where the hand doesn't make contact and the head snaps back. Uh, we had a couple of those this year over in Europe where our officials called just the embellishment on that, uh, which works well because it's in a scrum situation. So you look for the differential. Uh, but anytime there's a hook and then a player adds to that, uh, we encourage them to call both, call the hook and call the embellishment. 
And we have found that what that does is it sends a message to all the players sitting on the bench that, you know what, these guys aren't going to get sucked into penalties. And if we, if we go down lightly, they're going to call both ways. Mm-hmm. And we, like the NHL in, in our league in Europe, we do institute fines uh, to players that do embellish, and some of those are picked up on video, so it's not just on the officials uh, to identify that. Uh, but we definitely, we, we, we encourage the embellishment. We would rather, uh, call the hook and the embellishment than leave that infraction, uh, there because we want, we want it to be identified on the game sheet. We want it to be identified to the fans and we want to educate the players that uh, we are going to call it. So our, our preference is to call both. Okay. Um, no, and uh, coming back a little bit, you mentioned kind of calling the obvious penalty and, you know, and, you know, even today in the NHL that there's that emphasis on, you know, protecting the head and stuff like that. And we've had a few listeners ask questions. I mean, sometimes they, they, you know, we've all seen those games that the intensity just keeps ratcheting up and you need to make that impact call to slow, to settle the game down. I mean, in your experience, how do you make that impact call that's going to keep the game safe, but also maintain the intensity of the game without slowing the game down? How do, how do you make that, that big impact call? The, the, the biggest thing is that you have to see the entire action. Um, we, we, we're all guilty of it, uh, you know, putting two and two together and guessing, uh, seeing a player down and assuming that, uh, he got hit late. So we call interference. Um, that, that, that can take the physicality out of the game, which, which isn't our objective. Um, so for me, the, the, the impact call is you have to see it clearly, uh, depending on the nature of the game, if the emotions are running high and scrums become an issue, that impact call could be as simple as just calling a differential on the scrum. Uh, for, for me and, and, and the people that supervise my league over in Europe, uh, I, I uh, encourage, or, or not only encourage, but I demand that the supervisors come in after the game and tell the officials what the key moment of the game was. And often I've described to them that key moment may be letting a big hit go that was a legal hit. And what we've done over in, in Europe is we've worked very, very hard in our league to define what a clean body check is. And we educate the officials. Uh, and on top of that, we also educate the players and the coaches. And it's very easy for us to go back to a, a coach after the game or even the officials on the ice. And if we give him criteria, the player kept his arm tucked. The player did not elevate. Uh, he separated the player from the puck, not the player from the game. Uh, it was not against the boards. It, it was open ice or, or it was not three meters from the boards in terms of a safety issue. Um, so by having that definition and the ability to go back to the coaches, uh, we feel that even if you let a big hit go and you can explain to the bench why you let that go and your reasoning, that it does calm the game down. Uh, because at this point in the game, because we've cleansed it so much worldwide, it's very difficult to keep to, to, to keep the physicality in the game because it is part of the game. A good, hard, clean body check is part of the game. And as part of our education, we also educate the players that the use of the arms, uh, so the use of the arms into the boards, we call that excessive force, and we want our officials to call boarding on that because it's the use of excessive force, which is the definition in, in, in the boarding rule is excessive force. So if you're using your arms to propel someone in, uh, we encourage our guys to, to put, put their arms up. So that's part of the safety factor there. So you see someone using your arms, uh, you can go to the benches and say that was a minor penalty because of excessive force. So what we're telling the players is keep your arm tucked, keep your shoulder down, and hit cleanly and, and not use the arms. 
And you kind of mentioned uh, the fact that you're seeing kind of that physicality uh, trend out of the game. I mean, looking forward, uh, do you see that trend sort of continuing where this becomes more of a speed skill game? Or do you, or do you see that role of physicality still kind of continuing uh, down the road? What we noticed in our playoffs this year in, uh, in, in Austria was there were more open ice hits. Uh, players are reluctant to hit against the boards because fearful of, of taking penalties. Um, scrum action was a non-issue uh, because fighting has, has uh, almost uh, been eliminated. So there really isn't a lot of the, you know, grabbing after a whistle and scrumming and then we're, we're going to turn it into a fight. Um, so what we saw was an increase in open ice hits. Mm-hmm. And for us, this, the difficulty there is making sure that the player stays upright. And with the open ice hits where you, you, you run the risk of a, a low bridge hit or a clipping or knee on knee contact. Uh, so that's sort of been our heightened awareness for, for our officials is, is to, to, to keep an eye on, on the leg action. Um, but, but in terms of physicality, we see more open ice hard hits and we see less scrumming after the whistle. So to me, to me, that's a positive because that's, that's where the game should go. Speed and skill should always be rewarded, and and if there's still a physical component in there, then we've got a fast, hard-hitting game. Right. And uh, before we jump into kind of the communication skills that it requires as a referee, we've had one other question about, um, you know, working together as a, as a team of referees. Obviously, you talked about how you you know you started with the three-man system, and obviously it progressed to to the four-man. And we've had a few uh, referees ask us. I mean. When you're working with your partner and there's a, an infraction that you see down in the corner, right in your partner's corner, and hit your partner doesn't put his arm up, but you do. I mean, how do you deal with, with situations like that and not overstepping into kind of your partner's, uh, your partner's judgment? So <clears throat> two components of that. Uh, the, the person down low that doesn't react uh, has to acknowledge that your partner had a different sight line. And it is all about angles. It is all about sight lines. Um, you have to be able to keep your ego in check and acknowledge that maybe you did turn away for a split second and you missed whatever that infraction can be. Um, you also have to be able to stand your ground and be firm. And the next time that you get an opportunity to talk to, to your partner to discuss the situation, um, because the angle that you have or had may have been the correct angle. And you'll certainly something like a, a hook or a hold. Um, I generally instruct, uh, the people in the neutral, the officials in the neutral zone to leave the hook and the hold to the, the, the official that's close by, unless you know a hundred percent certainty that they did not see it. So they were looking in front of the net and it happened over in the corner, uh, something along those lines. But, but generally a hook and a hold, uh, should be left to the person down low. But then when you get into, uh, violent infractions, high stick slash elbow, anything to the head, um, that's when the person in the neutral zone, neutral zone should really kick in. Uh, for me to uh, attain consistency and, and the luxury of the National Hockey League is that they have three TV timeouts per, per period that they can come together and they can discuss situations. Uh, in amateur hockey, you don't have that luxury, and the only time that you can really talk is between periods, and I think that is a key, key time uh, to be exchanging information. And, and if it turns out that the official in the neutral zone overreacted, you can't try to change or compensate that for the rest of the game, but the two officials have to get on the same page. And you can't uh, take it to heart too much if somebody's calling infractions right in front of you. And uh, at the same time, you can't be 
uh, trigger happy and and be trying to uh, outdo your uh, outdo your fellow official. Uh, it's imperative that everyone sees that you're working together as a team. And the only way that this system can exist is if you work together as a team. And and that really isn't any different than what linesmen are doing all the way through in terms of uh, icing standards or face-off standards. Mm-hmm. Uh, communication between officials is is, is huge. And, and uh, for me, communication skills are something that you can always, always be working on. I, I try to encourage that. To, most of the people I work with also have day jobs. Uh, officiating isn't their full-time career. And I encourage them to get themselves in situations in their day job where they can utilize that on the ice. And, and you know, if you're a telemarketer in a, in a phone center, um, you can easily turn to the person beside you and give them some suggestions on what they're doing on the phone from the end that you're hearing uh, and vice versa. You can receive feedback from, from them and learn to take it. Mm-hmm. And to me, that, that's the, the, the biggest key is that we all learn from each other. So peer-to-peer uh, evaluation is probably the most effective. And in terms of being a, an official in the four official system, you have to be able to give feedback as well as uh, receive it. And, and being able to give it is being able to pick the right spots, uh, pick the right words, uh, and picking the right environment to try to uh, encourage someone or, or assist them. And so in situations where, you know, a call is made right in front of you, uh, my first reaction is to be neutral in, in, in your body language and in your reaction. And then the next thing to be is, is to have a conversation with that official and ask them why they put their hand up when this is what you saw. Mm-hmm. And certainly if you didn't see it, you need to admit that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I would always lean on the side of my partner just saved me as opposed to my partner just buried me. Right. No, I think right, that's a great point. And I think certainly that's something that a lot of referees out there will, will gladly uh, listen to and take as advice as they move on. And we talked about the importance of communication and I want to I want to come back. I found a couple of quotes that you gave in some interviews, and I just wanted to get your thoughts on them. So the, the first one here is you said that um, you found that if a coach or, or captains of a team are constantly complaining to the officials, that it kind of filters down to the rest of the team. And then you also said on another token in a separate quote that players that rarely complained always got your attention. So you mentioned like Joe Sackick, Joe Thornton would be two players that fall into that category. I'm just wondering if you could reflect on on those uh, statements, I guess, and talk about kind of dealing with complaints from the benches. Uh, like you say, if there's a lot of complaints and also, you know, listening to players that don't complain a lot, what's your kind of uh, takeaway from, from, from that, uh, that angle? So most, most definitely there were certainly um, coaches you could tell even when you were doing line changes, some coaches would look at you and some coaches w- wouldn't even look at you. Some, some had a feeling, uh, you know, in sports, there's a, a a big philosophy control you can control and you got the impression from some coaches that they felt that they could control the referees and other coaches felt that their responsibility was just to control their players. And without a doubt, uh, for example, uh, a coach like Joel Quenville, if Joel Quenville had a complaint, uh, generally there was some merit to it. And there are other coaches that are, that are more emotional and that just seem to want to uh, talk all the time and feel as though that, uh, you know, uh, the squeaky wheel gets the oil. So they constantly, you know, face off locations or, uh, little things. They, they constantly natter and batter. Um, you, you don't take their, their complaints to heart as much. Mm-hmm. Um, so anytime I talk at a coach's clinic, I certainly try to emphasize that, that, uh, you know, you, you only get so many complaints and so make sure that they're valid when, when, when you do use them. 
Um, as an official, you need to be able to control those situations. And so that coach that's constantly nattering, uh, he doesn't deserve, uh, he hasn't earned the right that you go to his bench frequently or that you acknowledge him and you speak through his captain or even at, at an extreme, you speak through his assistant coach, but you make it known to him that you're not going to put up with the nattering. And if you don't address it, it will just continue. And to me, uh, as I said, communication is a skill that you can work on and we can control conversations, uh, not only by what we say, but uh, by our uh, posture, by our body language, and things that we don't say. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that, that's the most effective way. So, so timing in terms of delivering a message is, is huge with that. Uh, and, and in terms of players that don't complain or coaches that do co- or, or that don't complain, uh, when they have a concern, you should be respectful and address it. Mm-hmm. And, and those people you shouldn't just, just blow off. You should uh, show them back the same respect that they've shown you throughout the whole game. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a great point. And uh, certainly, like I'm reflecting back on, you know, my time as a junior referee, and you would see that, you know, like you knew the coaches that were going to be pretty calm and would have those valid complaints. But then again, you had those coaches that like to, you know, complain a lot. And, you know, like, let's say what advice would you give to a referee that goes into a game and right off the hop, you know, you see that 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 a coach is going to be complaining? Like, do you go down and you shut do you shut that down right away? Do you like what's what's kind of from your experience, what's some good advice for those referees in shutting that down early? So the, the best thing to do that with, and it took me a long time to, to learn this because I spent a lot of time with them on my way up through the American League, was with Bob Hartley. And if you drew the line in the sand with Bob Hartley, he would stop. And by the, you know his, his last goal round in Calgary uh, that w- was my last year, and, and we had a fairly good rapport. I would see how, it w- how he would start the game off, and then once he started to natter, uh, it was very quick. It would, it could even just be skating by, uh, or I could at a TV timeout, make it obvious to everyone in the building and just go over to him and say, Bob, you've had your piece. That's enough. And he would stop. Uh, if you let him go, he would continue and players and coaches will, uh, cheat as much as you let them. And until you draw the line, uh, they won't stop. And the key there is that you need to back it up. And, uh, you know, how I did that with Bob Hartley was in the American League when he continued to send somebody over and we had a scrum situation and a player asked a silly question. And rather than send him back to the bench, I put the player in the box for an unsportsmanlike conduct. And that was my message to Bob that, you know what, these silly questions, they're done. And, and that's, you know, that was fairly early on in my career. And that's when Bob realized that uh, when I draw a line, I'm going to back it up. And you have to do that. And and if you don't think that people don't remember these things or they don't make notes on it, uh, certainly at the National Hockey League level and, and even major junior hockey in Canada, coaches have notes on officials' tendencies and what officials will do. Uh, everyone has their own line, and you need to know what your line is and you need to be consistent with it. So, so yes, when there was a coach that was a natterer, I, I would try to identify it early on in the game mm-hmm. and, and set the parameters. Yeah, no, I think that, that's, that's great advice, Greg. And just kind of uh, summarizing or wrapping up uh, our podcast here, uh, obviously you are currently a director of officiating in Europe, and I'm not going to try and pronounce the names of the leagues because I'm going to probably butcher it, but I'm just curious if you could you know, uh, tell the listeners listening, you know, kind of what your experience has been in, in working as a, as a, as a development director in Europe and just kind of maybe your philosophy of uh, that, of that role. So for my wife and I, it's been a fantastic experience. We've, we've been over in Europe for two years. We've been able to travel around a little bit, mostly driving. Um, we're fortunate that leagues that we deal with, we're in five different countries over there. 
my responsibilities go from junior hockey right up to the pro level. We have two pro leagues, uh, tier one pro league and a tier two pro league. And uh, my philosophy is is that I'm I'm trying to um, I'm trying to instruct the officials in, in a different way, different ways than, than how I was instructed. Uh, I'm a big believer that uh, if the student isn't learning, then maybe we should change the, the, the way that we're teaching. Uh, I've tried to use a lot of video work over there, which they hadn't been using in the past. Um, some consistency in terms of uh, uh, messages on the same day of the week. So a, a weekly email with some, some video coaching clips. Um, I, I've uh, worked hard on uh, coaching the coaches, so to speak. So the supervisors that I have over there. Uh, at first, what we did is we scaled back. The first year, we scaled back the number of supervisors, and we've been slowly uh, building up that that arsenal of, of supervisor. And and uh, as I said, we've we've uh, used the name coach, and I encourage them to coach the officials. Um, as I mentioned earlier, I want them to go down and tell them what the key moment of the game was. And as I said, that key moment may be a call that they let go, or an infraction, or a potential infraction that they let go. Uh, that that game didn't need that infraction and it, and it helped the entertainment value of the game. Uh, the other thing I'm big on is always next steps. And it's not a case of you missed a hook uh, in the second period. It, it's a case of uh, you missed a hook in the second period because you were caught going behind the net when you shouldn't have gone behind the net. You should have stayed uh, closer to the goal line and, and watched the play from the side of the net that you were on, things along those lines. So I'm, I'm big on key moments of the game, uh, next steps, and uh, what I like to refer to is the soft skills and the soft skills, one of them definitely being communication, uh, building rapport with the players, uh, understanding your rules in, in, in a different way. Uh, feedback, uh, as I mentioned earlier, feedback is, is big. And, and as I've mentioned, peer to peer feedback. And, and this year, my focus with the officials on the ice is going to be self-evaluation. Mm-hmm. I found in, in talking to them about evaluating their own performances that all that they looked for were the negatives. And I'm going to work hard with the officials this year that they, they have a firm understanding of what their strengths and their weaknesses are. And, and uh, what I want every official to do is to work to their strengths. Mm-hmm. And a big part of it is that um, we, we can't all be that number one official, but we can take components of that number one official and tweak it into our own game. Mm-hmm. So I want people to be themselves. Uh, uh, over in Europe, they've been schooled a lot by the IHF, which, which is a large organization, and they have a number of policies uh, that are somewhat rigid. And we're trying to bring more of a North American feel to our officials. And, and a big part of that is communicating with, with the coaches and, 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 and understanding that there's a time to, to be angry with them, and then there's a time to crack a joke and, and to, to lighten the mood. Right. So the, the, the soft skills and then different learning techniques is, is, has kind of been my focus in the last two years. Yeah. No, Greg, that's uh, I think a lot of there's a lot of great lessons in there for referees out there and linesmen that are listening. And, uh, you know, just coming to the end of the podcast, I really want to thank you for taking the time to talk with us and certainly sharing your experience of over two decades in the NHL, uh, over a thousand games and now as an officiating director. So uh, I want to thank you first and foremost. And before we let you go, I'd love just as much as there was a ton of wisdom in that. Uh, is there any final pieces of advice that you would have for the referees out there that are listening that might be aspiring to go to the NHL one day? Uh, for me, I would say maintain the passion. Uh, you got involved in officiating because you love the sport and, and you're passionate about the sport. And I would say 
uh, every day, try to try to work on some of those soft skills, things that you can take from your day to day life, your your uh, day job, your work life, uh, your student life, and and bring it to the rink. Uh, whether it be interacting with your peers or interacting with the players and the coaches, it's 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 something that you can always be working on, and and, and it's a skill. It's uh, you know some aren't better than others; some just work harder at it. No, Greg, thank you very much again for your time, and we wish you uh, all the best down the road. Thank you very much. It's been very enjoyable.